The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 10 this morning, and I am so excited about the word that the Lord has given to me to share with you. And um, let's just go ahead and begin with a word of prayer as well. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have before us, that we can sit at your feet, that we can open your word, and we can hear your voice. Jesus, we pray and ask that in these moments you would take your word and like a seed you would plant it into our hearts and that it would take root and take hold and that it would produce a crop a hundredfold. We want to be like the seed that fell on good soil. So Lord, recalibrate our hearts and position our minds and open our ears so that you have our full and undivided attention. We give that to you now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, the title of my message for you today is Happy Sheep. And I want to begin by reading our text. Look at verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisee. So this is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. He says, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in and go out and find pasture. Now, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Beautiful, beautiful, picturesque imagery here, wherein Jesus talks about the nature of his relationship with his people, and he describes that using the metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep. Now, the Bible uses a number of different pictures and images to describe God and his relationship to us. And so God is the king, and we are his subjects. He is a father, and we are his children. He is our provider. He is our protector. There's uh, an instance in scripture where he's compared to a mother hen who gathers her chicks. And, And so there are all of these myriad of images and metaphors that get used to describe God. But I don't know that there's one that is more beautiful or more beloved than the imagery of God as a shepherd. It's something that gets woven throughout the pages of scripture. And who could forget the beautiful and memorable way that King David, as he reflected on his own experiences as a shepherd taking care of his flock there in the Judean wilderness, and he reflected on that and he compared it to his relationship with the Lord. And he said, you know what? Just as I cared for those little lambs, God, I recognize that you, you're my shepherd. And because of that, I lack nothing. 
and you lead me out, and you make me to lie down in green pastures. And he goes on from there and paints this beautiful picture that we so love and are endeared to. And then you think back to the history of Israel and how so many of Israel's history, uh, heroes rather, the patriarchs of the faith, they were all shepherds. Men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses was a shepherd too, as was David. And then in addition to that, God also frequently alluded to the fact that the religious leaders of the nation were also shepherds in the sense that they were to take care of and protect the people of God. And by the way, that's what pastors are. In fact, the, the Latin word for pastor or shepherd is pastor. So I am your shepherd, which I guess makes you a bunch of sheeple. <laughs> I love that. Turn to the person next to him and just say, hey, you make a great looking sheep. <laughs> now, we've been blessed at this church, haven't we? Um, when I think of, uh, of a shepherd, in, in 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter encourages the church to care for the flock that has been put under their care. And, and we've just benefited from the incredible shepherding of my father, Pastor Ray. And he modeled that for me so well, just taking good care of this flock. But as we transition now, when you think about the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had failed to properly represent the Lord, and they'd become derelict in their duty. And so Jesus, in this passage, he calls them out on that fact. And this is something that God had to do repeatedly throughout the nation of Israel's history. One instance in particular, there in Ezekiel 34, God addresses the shepherds, the religious leaders of the nation, and he levels this stinging indictment against them. He says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? And so the implication there is that they were putting their own needs ahead of the needs of the people. And if you were to read that chapter, God goes on to point out several ways specifically that they had failed to care for his people. And then he concludes, because of this, I myself will search for my sheep and I'll look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. And thus God says, I'm stepping in, and I am going to assume the role of the shepherd to my people, and he is the ultimate shepherd. But again, even in acknowledging that, as we acknowledge that God is our shepherd, we're also saying something significant about ourselves. We just pointed this out. We are his sheep. You remember that instance where Jesus looked out over the multitudes, and, and we read this in Matthew chapter 9. In fact, let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It's in your notes. It says this, when, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, a sheep without a shepherd is not a good thing. That sheep is in a precarious predicament. Why? Well, because... Quite honestly, sheep are not the brightest of animals. <laughs> Some animals are incredibly smart. And, and God could have compared us to like a dolphin. Dolphins are really smart. There are some dogs that can do amazing tricks. They're really smart. But sheep, not so much. Which, you know, when Jesus looks around, he says, you know, you guys remind me of something. Ah, oh, yes, sheep. Sheep are simple creatures. 
They're easily scared. They wander off. They become distracted. They get lost, and they have no defense mechanisms to protect themselves against predators, right? You look at the animal kingdom, and God has equipped them, nearly all of them, with some means of getting away from a predator. Some are fast. Some can fly. Some have talons or quills or whatever. But a sheep has none of that. So if there's a predator, a wolf or something in the area, and he's looking to have a a snack, the only thing the sheep can do to defend itself is this. Ready? Like, that's it. That's, That's all they have. That's the card that they play. They're basically like a flashing golden arches sign right there in the wilderness, rack of lamb walking along for any would be predator. The only real hope that a sheep has for surviving is to stay close to his shepherd. And so as we think about this and consider the fact that Israel is well aware of this metaphor, this picture that gets painted throughout scripture where God is their shepherd and they know that, but then Jesus comes along and and he says, I am the good shepherd. And he takes this familiar metaphor and he applies it to himself. He takes the very covenant name of God, I am. This is the name by which God reveals himself to Moses. And he combines it with this characteristic or this attribute of himself. And he says, I am the good shepherd. And he fills in the picture of who God is. And he makes two I am statements in the verses we read. Now, there are seven total in the Gospel of John. We've already looked at two. He said, I am the bread of life. And he said, I am the light of the world. And now today we get to see him make two more I am statements. And let's look at these together. Number one, he says, I am the gate. And we see this in verses seven through nine, where Jesus says, I am the gate and no one comes in and no one goes out except through me. And by identifying himself as the gate, Jesus was telling the religious leaders that he is the protector of his people. And this is important because you have to remember that John chapter 10 comes on the heels of John chapter 9, and that might just be the most profound thing I say all day. And in John chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man, the man who had been born blind, and he is brought before the the religious leaders of the day, and, and they don't want to acknowledge Jesus, and so at the end of the day, they end up excommunicating this blind man who had just been healed, and Jesus says, hey, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the protector of the sheep. I'm the gate. But he's also saying, I am the the point of access to the sheep pen. Now, there's a bit of contextual, um, historical uh, rootedness in what Jesus says here, because at that time, shepherds would typically return to their town at night, and all the shepherds would take their sheep, and they would be held in a communal pen. But, you know, it's a beautiful countryside, and you can imagine some summer evening, a shepherd is out there with his flocks on the Judean hills, and he's enjoying the sunset, and he just wants to camp out. And so what he would do in that instance is he would take some thickets and some bramble bushes, some thorny bushes, and he would make kind of a makeshift pen or enclosure for his sheep with only one point of access. And then he would lead his sheep into that pen, and he would lay down at its entrance. Why? So that no sheep could get out and no predators could get in. And I love that picture because in saying that he's the gate, Jesus is saying, the only way you're going to find safety in the flock, in the pen, is by coming through me. There are a lot of people that would say there are many roads to God and Jesus is great for you, but I follow Muhammad or I follow Buddha and it's like, hey, we're all going to end up at the same place. And I would say, "Uh uh-uh, 
The Bible clearly states that there aren't many roads to God, but there is only one road to God, and no man comes to the Father except through him, and his name is Jesus. If there had been another way, amen, if there had been another way, then certainly God would have handled Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane differently. Because you remember what Jesus prayed? And he was there and he was under great distress. And the Bible says that he was literally sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because he was under so much duress as he considered and thought through the events that were about to transpire the following day. And he prayed. He prayed three times, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Now, the cup he was talking about is the cup of suffering that he was getting ready to drink where he would go to the cross and pay for the sins of the world. If there's any other way, he was saying, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And the deafening silence from heaven and the fact that Jesus did eventually go to the cross communicates to you and I that he is the only gate, he is the only door, and he is the narrow way, and nobody gets to the Father except through him. So Jesus is the gate. But he also makes another statement in verse 11. And he says, I'm not just the gate. He says, I am the good shepherd. And I love the fact that he qualifies this statement by describing the kind of shepherd that he is. He doesn't just say, I am a shepherd. No, no, he says, I'm a good shepherd. And the word that's used there in the Greek is the word kalos, K-A-L-O-S. And it's a word that is here translated good, but in other places, it could also be translated as wholesome, or noble, or beautiful. I love that. Jesus says, I am the beautiful shepherd. And there's something intrinsically beautiful about him, something attractive about him, something that we inherently desire. And since we've already established the fact that a sheep's well-being is wholly dependent on the kind of care that it receives from his shepherd, isn't it wonderful to know that we serve a good shepherd? In fact, Hebrews 13, 20 calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. But what makes him good? What qualifies him as good? And there are three things that I see in our text. And the first one is this. He's good because he knows his sheep. And we see this in verse 3, where he says, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice because he calls them by name and he leads them out. There is a degree of intimacy that gets described here that Jesus enjoys with his sheep. And there are varying degrees of intimacy, right? I mean, you might know some people casually as acquaintances and and they kind of scratch the surface on their knowledge of you and, and they get this much access, but then you might have friends that you've had for, I don't know, 10 or 20 years and, and, and they know you at a deeper level. But then if you're married, your spouse, well, they know you inside and out, and they know everything there is to know about you. And so there are degrees and levels of intimacy, and I think that we get a clue into the degree or level of God's knowledge of us when it says that he calls us by name. In ancient times, as I said earlier, the the shepherds would often gather their sheep and put them in a communal pen. And and you say, well, how would they know which sheep belonged to each shepherd the following morning? And they had a very simple means or mechanism by, by which they would determine that. And each shepherd would take turns going into the pen, and they would just call to their sheep by name. And the sheep were so familiar with the sound of their shepherd's voice that they would just follow him out into the pasture. Now, some of these flocks were quite large. 
Now, upwards of a hundred or even more sheep, but the shepherd had taken the time to develop personal relationships with each and every one of his sheep. And he had little pet nicknames for each of them. And he, he would say to this one, oh, come on, Curly. Come on, little Lambert. Come on, Sleepy. Come on, Grumpy. Come on, Dopey. Come on, whatever. And he had a hundred different names for each one of his sheep. And they were so familiar with his voice that they would follow him out. And to think and to know that God, he knows our name. He calls us by it. It always feels good when someone you run into that you respect or admire, they, they remember your name. And you just feel like honored by that. It feels good. Dale Carnegie, who's a behavioral uh, expert, said this, and I quote, a person's name is to them the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Scientists say that when we hear our own name, we get a dopamine dump that gets released into our bloodstream. We like hearing our name, but now imagine your name on God's lips. But it's not just that he knows you casually. He doesn't just know your name. No, no, no. He knows you much deeper than that. He knows your personality. He knows your strengths and weaknesses. He knows your dreams. He knows your fears. And this is where... I think most of us struggle, right? Because we can get on board with God loving the world. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we can get on board with that, God loving the world in some kind of general, generic way. But where it gets more difficult is when we consider the fact that he knows and loves us personally, specifically, and individually. And yet it is absolutely true. God called this young man named Jeremiah into the ministry. And, and in the first chapter of the book that bears his name, he fills us in on his story and how he was called into the ministry. And this is what the Lord spoke to him. This is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Let's read it out loud. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Think about that. God says, before your mama and your daddy ever even got together and fell in love, I already knew you. I had gifted you and called you and equipped you, and I had a plan and a purpose for your life that was specific and unique to you. And you're not just one in a million, but you're one of a kind. And there is nobody on this planet who can fulfill your mission the way that you can, which means that none of us are accidents. None of us are mistakes. You might have been a whoops baby by your parents, but in God's eyes, he saw you, he knew you, and he had a calling on your life from the very beginning. Praise the Lord. And I just want to read one more verse because I love tripping out on this thought. King David in the 139th Psalm, he reflects on God's intimate knowledge of him and he says it like this. Let's read this together out loud. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Think about the level of knowledge. God is here. I mean, David's describing a stalker, not God. God, God's like, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff happening in heaven. And the angel's like, oh, God, God. And he's like, shh, shh, hold on, hold on. <gasps> look, Daniel just got up and he went outside. Isn't that great? Oh, my gosh. Oh, look, they, he laid down. Oh, I'm just going to watch him sleep. Oh, this is so fun. This is God with you. He loves you to that degree. It's crazy love. It's, 
extravagant love. I remember when my kids were much younger and they were in their cribs and, and you know how it is as a young parent and you finally get them to sleep and you get a minute to yourself. But then a little later in the evening, I'd find myself sneaking back into their room and I would just hover over their crib and I would stare down at that little baby and oh, they're wrapped up in that little burrito wrap that you do when they're babies. And, and they, they make this cutest little cooing sound when they're in that stage. And I, I would just feel my heart just pounding inside of my chest because I was filled to overflowing with so much love for this little one and to think like, that's God with us. He, 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 he knows you. He knows you. And that makes him a good shepherd. But he doesn't just know you. That's one thing. But the second thing that proves us how good of a shepherd it is, is he leads his sheep. He leads his sheep. Now, we see this in verse 4, where it says, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Now, this is where sheep differ from cows or other herd animals. Cows, you can drive. And whether it's through a rancher with the crack of a whip or with a cattle prod, they can drive the herd forward. But you can't drive sheep. Sheep have to be led. And they won't go anywhere that the shepherd doesn't go first. And that's good to know. That no matter what Jesus calls you into, no matter what act of obedience he's asking you to complete, it's something that he has first gone ahead of you and done. Why? Because our shepherd became a sheep. And he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he never sinned. And so he knows what it's like to be a sheep. And every place he calls you into is a place he's already been, which is why 17 times in the Gospels, Jesus issues the following invitation. He says, follow me. And the life of a Christian is a life of following Jesus through the peaks and valleys of life. And that's where he leads us. In different seasons, there are different places where the shepherd knows he's going to find the best grass for grazing. And so in the the dry summer months, he might lead you to a mountain peak where the grass is still green. But then in the winter months where the the snow is covering the peaks of the mountains, he might lead you down into green valleys or or green pastures and besides still waters. And, And in every season of your life, he knows what you need and he'll lead you to that place where you can thrive and flourish. And even... Even when you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to be afraid because your shepherd is there and he's with you. And goodness and mercy are following you and they're chasing you down and they're pursuing you all the days of your life. He leads us. And the way he leads us is specific and our text alludes to it on a number of occasions. He leads us with his voice. It says that in verse three, my sheep listen to my voice. In verse 4, he says, my sheep know my voice. He says it again in verse 16, my sheep listen to my voice. And he says it one more time in verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. They know me and they follow me. And so the mark of a Christian is they know the voice of their shepherd. Now, some people say that God doesn't speak anymore. There are certain theological camps I say, no, no, everything God wanted to say, he's already written down in this book. And if you want to know what God is saying, just open the Bible and, and that's all you need. And I understand the value of scripture and certainly God has spoken to us through his word. And, and this book doesn't just contain the words of God. It is the living, breathing word of God. But I, I, I disagree with this notion that God no longer actively speaks 
Because it goes against the grain of who he is. He's a communicative, relational being. And it's not like he's developed some terrible case of laryngitis. And after 4,000 years of communicating with people, for the next 2,000 years, he's just like... He wants to speak to us. In his book, Hearing God, Dallas Willard writes, if God doesn't speak today, then the greatest disservice we could ever do to people is to tell them that they could have a personal relationship with God. Right? Because the biggest difference between an unbeliever and a believer is the believer has a relationship with Jesus. Now, what kind of relationship can you have with someone who never speaks with you? A a, a vital component to any healthy relationship is an ongoing dialogue. Think about the way this plays out in in the bigger decisions that you make in your life. So, for example, let's say you're considering which job to take, and they're in different locations, and so you can gather the facts and do the research and consider the options and weigh the pros and cons of each. Now, a a believer and an unbeliever can do that, but only the believer can go to God in prayer and say, Lord... I need a divine download. I need your heart. I need your will. And prayer is a two-way street wherein you bring your requests, your needs to God, and then he communicates his heart back to you. And so God wants to lead us by his voice. And here's the good news. The good news is that hearing the voice of God is innate. What I mean by that is you have been already designed and created with all of the equipment that is necessary to hear the voice of God, which is why Jesus expects it. He says, my sheep know my voice. He expects you to know the sound and be familiar with the sound of his voice. Let me date myself here a little bit. When I was dating my wife um, way back when, and before we got married and even after we got married, uh, this was before caller ID. And so your phone would ring in those days, and you would just pick it up, and it was a grab bag. You didn't know who was going to be on on the other line. And when my wife and I got to know each other after we'd been dating for a while, all she had to say was, hey, and I knew it was her immediately. You know, even if today she calls me from a number that I don't recognize, I know her by her hey. And it's because I know her so well. And God says, that's the, the, the level of intimacy I want to bring you into. I want you to know me by my voice. And just to drive home this point, you don't have to be a super Christian or a pastor to hear from God. All you have to do is be willing and open. So it's innate. You're created with the faculties, the equipment you need to hear from him. But even though it's innate, it's also a learned or developed skill, right? Think about a baby. A baby has all of the necessary equipment to engage with and interact with the world into which he or she is brought, but they still have to learn how to use that equipment, right? And so when you're a parent and you're working with your kids and you're trying to get that first word, it's a big competition. Are they going to say mama or dada? And every little monosyllabic grunt of the kid is interpreted by their parents. That was definitely dada. I win. It's over. And so we work with them and they develop their vocabulary and their skill set for learning, listening, and communicating. And it works the same way in the spiritual world. The longer you walk with the Lord, the, the, the more you're able to discern the voice of the Lord. Because we question, don't we? Was that my thought or was that a God thought? Was that a good idea or was that a God idea? Or was that the devil? And so we need to develop our listening skills and it's something you can grow in. Even Samuel, who was a young boy at the time, he's running around in the temple. And Eli was the older priest. And and he, he, Samuel keeps running into Eli, and he says, you keep calling me. What do you want? And he keeps putting him back into bed. You know, every parent has lived out this drama a thousand times. 
And so finally, Eli discerns like, wait a minute, I'm not calling you. I think it's the Lord. He says, the next time you hear that voice call to you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And he's training young Samuel on how to discern the voice of the Lord. And so as Christians, we need to to develop our listening skills. So let me give you two quick tips on how you can improve your communication skills and begin to hear from the Lord better. Number one, put yourself in environments where God is more likely to speak. There are places where the signal is stronger, to use that analogy. For instance, in my house, we have um, Wi-Fi, and there are places in the house where the Wi-Fi is stronger and places where the signal is weaker. And so we tend to congregate in the areas where the signal is strongest so we can compete for the Wi-Fi. In the same way, there are places and environments that you can put yourself in that are conducive to hearing the voice of the Lord. And and by the way, this is one of those places. You're more likely to hear from God here in the house of the Lord where you're surrounded with worship and the word and and fellowship. I mean, God will speak to you if your heart is open, and I know he will. And also, if you'll carve out space and time and get away from the distractions and the noise, I I, I do feel like he speaks loudest when we're quietest, right? Right? And and, and then there's just other things that you can do when you put yourself in an environment where God is likely to speak. I mean, he's going to speak to you when your Bible's open and you have a pen and a notebook ready to write down what he's going to say. You're more likely to hear from him in that environment than you are in, say, like a club. Although he could speak to you in a club too, right? (laughs) He did that with Belteshazzar in the form of a disembodied hand and it wrote on the wall. But you're more likely to hear from him when your Bible's open and you have a cup of coffee, because coffee equates to hearing the voice of the Lord. Somebody say amen. (laughs) One more tip. Before you ask him to speak, predetermine in your heart that you will respond with a yes to whatever he tells you to do. You give God your yes, and he'll give you further instructions. And oftentimes, when we fail to hear the voice of the Lord, it's because we haven't done the last thing that he said. And so you forfeit your ability to hear future downloads, future revelation, future instruction. You forfeit your ability to hear those words from God when you fail to do the last word. And so often when you haven't heard from the Lord in quite a while, it's because you need to go back and do the last thing that he said. And God speaks to those who give him their unreserved yes. So obey God and give him your yes before he speaks. That's the second tip. Now, God is a good shepherd because he knows us, he loves us, and he leads us. But ultimately and preeminently, what makes him a good shepherd is what he identifies there in verse 11. He says, I'm the good shepherd because I lay down my life for the sheep. And he left heaven, and he came to this earth, and he walked for 33 and a half years, and he lived a perfect life, and then he climbed up on the cross, and he took our place, and that's what makes him trustworthy. We can trust him with our future. We can trust him with our life. We can trust him with our family. We can trust him with our career, and he's proved his love for us and that he went to the cross for us. So as we bring this to a close, I'd like to just end by talking about a few of the benefits or the results, if you will, of having Jesus as your shepherd. And we read those in verse 10 where he says, the thief comes to rob and to kill and to destroy, but I've come that you might have life and that you might have abundant life. Now, when he talks about abundant life there, he's talking about a certain quality of life, right? Not just a length of time.
time, but a quality to that time. When you look at social media and you see the ads, or perhaps if you watch television and, or if you read through a magazine, you're going to see tons of ads. You're going to be inundated by ads that, that, that promote some kind of cream or perhaps it's an injection or a pill, something that you can do to reverse the clock and to stay young forever. And this cream will take away wrinkles and this pill will burn away fat and it's, it's glorious. And, and it's all about adding years to our life. And science is consumed with trying to add years to our life, but only Jesus can add life to your years. And the promise here in John 10.10 is that there is a a superabundance of life. There is a fulfilling life, a rich life that is promised to those who walk in relationship with him. Synonyms for the word abundant include words like excessive, more than enough, beyond measure. And let me just suggest this is the life you were created for. I'm so passionate about this topic. That as believers, we would step into and enter in and begin to walk in the fullness of the reality of the life that Jesus came to bring us. It's an abundant, the the kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. And this is what we've been promised. This is our divine inheritance. And yet it is something that so many of us fall short of. I remember hearing this story about a pastor who wanted to help in the construction of his church's new sanctuary building, and he didn't have any history or experience with carpentry, but the foreman, the contractor was like, yeah, sure, you can help. Why don't you take this pile of lumber, and he had a bunch of two-by-fours, and he said, cut these hundred boards down to six feet in length. And so the pastor was like, okay, great, I can do that. And he took out his tape measure, measured off six feet, and he made the first cut. But then when it came to the second board, instead of taking out the tape measure again, what he did is he took the the first board that he'd cut and he stacked that on the second board and he used his pencil and made the mark and made the cut. Then he took the second board and laid it on top of the third and fourth and so on until he got to the hundredth board. Now, here's what happens when you do that. Because of the length of the board, you're not getting a true measurement and the width of the pencil, you're actually adding about an eighth of an inch in length to every board that you measure, which isn't a big deal when you're only cutting a few boards. But when you cut 100, by the time you get to the 100th board, that board was now over seven feet in length, and he was supposed to be cutting them to six six feet lengths. And as Christians, what if we haven't done the same thing? Where the standard for abundant living, the picture, the model for abundant living that we've been given in Scripture is Jesus. And by his Holy Spirit, he now resides and lives and dwells within our hearts, which means we are carriers of the divine presence. And that ought to equate to a certain style and and, and a certain um, extravagance in the way that we live. We ought to walk in the miraculous. We ought to see the impossible. We ought to experience his peace in the midst of every storm. Why? Because Jesus dwells in us. He's the tape measure. He's the standard. But over time, what ends up happening is we start to measure ourselves over and against other Christians, and our experience gets weighed against theirs. Or perhaps we weigh our experience against previous generations, and after 2,000 years, the church ends up looking nothing like the original. And it's time to get back to the roots. We need to get back to the original design, which is Jesus. Jesus in us. Why? Because our world needs it. We owe the world an extravagance of living and a lifestyle that is so beyond the norm that the only way it is explainable is through the association or connection that we have to Jesus. This is what happened in the first century. 
They gathered Peter, James, and John, and they're like, what are you guys doing? You just raised this crippled guy up, and it's like, ah, we thought we got rid of the Jesus problem. And so they bring them before the Sanhedrin, and they, they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're like, look, you can threaten us all you want, but we can't help but share what we've seen and heard. And we're going to obey God rather than men. And it says in that moment in Acts chapter 4 that they looked at these men, that they were unlearned, that they were untrained. But it says they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. They still looked like the original. And the goal and the, the heart of God for you is that you would step into the kingdom of abundance that you were designed to experience. It is your divine inheritance. Now, we've been talking about God's plan for your life, and that's certainly what it is. But you see, in the, the, the reverse of that, that Satan also has a design, a plan for your life. And it, it's laid out for us there in John 10, 10. The thief comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. We like to say in Christian circles that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Those words come from a little tract that Bill Bright wrote way back in 1965 called The Four Spiritual Laws. Millions of these things have been distributed around the globe, and millions of people have been evangelized through them. And the very first spiritual law that gets talked about is this idea that God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, if that's true, and it is, the inverse of that is also true. Satan hates you, and he has a horrible plan for your life. And he is ripping people off all over the place. And he does a bait and switch. And he doesn't come right out and expose himself and his real agenda. No, he says, I want to bring you into a life of fun and, and freedom. But his freedom is attached to chains. And the life that he promises results in death. And he always robs. He always saps joy. He always steals peace. He always kills intimacy. And the very thing that you find yourself searching for and chasing is the very thing you will never find until you surrender your heart to the good shepherd. And the good news is we get to choose. We get to choose who our shepherd is. So choose life. Choose Jesus. Choose to follow the good shepherd, the good shepherd who knows you. He knows, he knows you. He knows you inside and out. He, he sees all the skeletons in your closet. He's not turned off by them. In fact, he's wooing you. He's calling you by name. Come home. Come home. He knows you. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you by your spiritual navigational GPS system, the Holy Spirit. He wants to lead you through this life so you become familiar with his voice. And he wants to bring you into kingdom abundance. That's the heart of your shepherd. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray for this gathering and these precious, precious saints, Lord. These sheeple <laughs> that you love so dearly. And... It's incredible, Lord. We're, we're sitting in a room, and there's so many of us here, and we might feel insignificant. We might feel isolated. We might feel like we don't matter. And yet the Lord wants you to know that you matter immensely, that he loves you personally, specifically, individually, and uniquely. In fact, if you had been the only person on the planet Jesus still would have come. He still would have left heaven. He still would have died on the cross in your place so that you could know him. 
He so longs for you to walk in relationship with him. And perhaps it's the desire of your heart. God has led you to the place this morning where you're ready to surrender your heart and say, I want Jesus as my shepherd. And maybe you've been trying on your own to, to, to figure out life and to figure out how to find your way into those green pastures on your own. And it's left you frustrated and it's led you into this place of futility. And God has brought you to church today so that he could communicate his love to you and he could invite you back into the fold by means of the gate. And the gate's name is Jesus. And if that's the desire of your heart, you say, I want in, I want Jesus. I want to know the shepherd's voice. I want to experience kingdom abundance. You slip your hand up. I want to pray with you right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All over this room, hands going up, people saying, I want the shepherd. I want the life. Lord, we thank you for the sheep that are responding. They're coming home today. And for those of you who did raise your hand, you can just follow me in this prayer and say it out loud, mean it from the bottom of your heart. The rest of us can join in as a means of reaffirming our own vows and love for Jesus. Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and being my shepherd who gave himself for me. I received the gift of life. Help me to hear your voice and to follow you through this life till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.